All right, well, let's turn to John's Gospel, John's Gospel and the fifth chapter. John's Gospel, chapter 5. In John chapter 5, Jesus has deliberately sought out an afflicted man at the pool of Bethesda, where he healed him on the Sabbath. And this healing provoked a fierce conflict with the Jews, especially after Jesus claimed that both he and his father were working on the Sabbath. And far from backing down under death threats, Jesus goes on to boldly assert his true identity. Verses 19 through 29, we have a clear declaration of who Jesus truly is from his own lips. This is a passage that for me is really a go-to passage when I'm discussing with somebody who Jesus really is. Who did he think himself to be? Well, look at John chapter 5. Now, these claims were prefaced by the words of verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Obviously, Jesus is claiming a unique relationship with the Father. This relationship is just so close that he can claim that everything that he does derives from divine initiative. Now, in verse 30, Jesus is going to circle back and make a similar statement in order to call the Father as a witness to his deity. And from that point, Jesus will proceed to identify further witnesses to his true identity. So let's read from verse 30 through verse 40, and let's see whether we can locate four witnesses to Jesus. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He, John, was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Well, did you locate the four witnesses to Jesus? The first might be a little difficult to detect, but it's the Father. He is the another in verse 32. And in verse 37, Jesus explicitly identifies the Father as a witness. The second is John, and this is John the Baptist. He's found in verse 33. The third is or are the works that Jesus performs. You find them in verse 36. And the fourth witness is found in verse 39, the Scriptures. So here they are, the Father, John the Baptist, Jesus' works, and the Scriptures. 
Four witnesses to Jesus. Now, let's keep the larger context in mind. Jesus has made a series of startling declarations about his deity. The Jews now seek to kill him. So who are you going to trust? The Jewish law required two witnesses to confirm a truth. Jesus gives us four. Four witnesses to Jesus. All right? So let's discover these four witnesses by working back to the text line by line. Verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So once again, Jesus asserts his identity with the Father. Of course, he does not name the Father, but we know that the one who sent Jesus is the Father. So verse 30 is just a re-emphasis of verse 19, where Jesus has already claimed that everything he does, he does with the Father's initiative. Now glance back for just a moment at verse 22. Jesus says, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So why can God entrust Jesus as judge of all men? Well, look now at verse 30 again, middle of the verse. My judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Would you think about those two statements, how truly marvelous they are? Jesus is saying that there is a circular, circular, reciprocal relationship between Him and the Father. They mutually trust each other. There is not a shadow of difference between them. The judgment of one is perfectly identical to the judgment of the other. And that's why God can appoint Jesus judge because Jesus perfectly seeks the will of the Father. I think we all know that when we have any ruling that comes down from the Supreme Court, even when two justices agree on a decision, they rarely see eye to eye. Even in a majority opinion, there are differences. But that scenario never happens between Jesus and the Father. They are perfectly agreed. All right? Now that sets us up for the witnesses that are to come, but it's important that you just carry this idea of reciprocal judgment right into verse 31, or you're going to misinterpret it. Jesus says, verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Well, is Jesus claiming that he could err in judgment? Well, certainly not. Jesus is not saying that he's not a good witness to himself, but here's what Jesus means. If if I were to say anything at all that was independent of the Father, I wouldn't be telling the truth. But of course, that never happens. The Father backs up everything that Jesus says. Now, if that were not the case, Jesus would be saying untrue things, but again, that never, ever, ever happens. And that leads then to verse 32, where Jesus begins to emphasize these four witnesses. So, verse 32, he says, There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now this another, as I've said, is God the Father. But the wording might confuse you just a little bit. Jesus is not saying another in addition to the Father. It almost reads that way at first. In verse 30, he spoke about the Father who sent him. So we might think the another is someone in addition to the Father who sent him. But that's actually not what he's saying. The another is another in addition to Jesus, 
in verse 31. Jesus, yes, he can bear witness to himself, verse 31. But there is another, well, who? Well, back to the Father. Verse 32 actually circles back around to the Father, verse 30. Verse 32 brings the Father right back into view. The Father is a witness to Jesus. Now, would you imagine this? Jesus spent the entirety of his ministry enjoying a deep, inward sense of the Father's approval. Can you even imagine how wonderful that would be? How many times have we, even when doing things that we thought were right, wondered if we really had God's approval? Is this, is this really God's will? Is this the Father's will? How many of us have really struggled to know God's will at times in our lives? I dare say that all of us have had those seasons when we have prayed, when we have read our Bibles, when we have sought godly counsel, when we have just waited patiently on the Lord. And nevertheless, we just sort of wonder, is, is this really God's desire, God's will? Well, friends, that was never a problem for Jesus. Imagine that. Jesus knew that He had the Father's approval. And Jesus needed no other witnesses. But of course, having this inner sense of the Father's approval does not translate into a kind of public witness to Jesus. Could anyone just come along and say, well, yeah, I have God's stamp of approval. I've heard plenty of people claim God's sanction for things that they're doing for their beliefs, and I respond with skepticism. You, you, you really think God told you to do that? Well, the fact is, Jesus does not need additional witnesses. But for our sake, at this point, he is going to come along and he's going to add three more public witnesses to himself. Three more witnesses in addition to the Father. Number one, John the Baptist. Number two, his own miracles. And number three, the Scriptures themselves. All right? So verse 33 introduces us to that second witness, John the Baptist. Look at the text. You sent the John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Well, Jesus on this occasion is most likely referring to an event that we've already read about back in John chapter 1. So let's turn there. In John 1, the Jews have sent a delegation from Jerusalem, a delegation of priests and Levites, to investigate John's ministry down along the banks of the Jordan. Who is this guy? Everybody's flocking out there to see this guy. Well, who is he and what's he doing? When that delegation inquired as to John's true identity, he quickly clarified in verse 20, look at the text, I am not the Christ. That's John's testimony. I am not the Messiah. Rather, I, I am just a voice in the wilderness preparing the way for the Messiah. John states his own unworthiness even to stoop down and to remove the sandals from the feet of the Messiah. Now, the day following this delegation's arrival, John actually sees Jesus coming toward him. And that's when John, in the words of verse 29, proclaimed these famous words. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, that's the witness of John. That's John's testimony to who Jesus truly is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John then relates what happened several weeks earlier when John had baptized Jesus. In verses 32 and 34, through 34, John bears witness 
Remember the witness of John, John 5? Well, here's John's witness, verse 32, and John bore witness. Well, John, what did you see? Here's what I witnessed. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. I myself did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, I saw Him, and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John witnessed the Holy Spirit come down and single out this man named Jesus of Nazareth among thousands who were coming to be baptized. And from that moment forward, John's consistent testimony was just unmistakable. This man is the Son of God. That is John's testimony, John's witness. And it's that witness that Jesus is now invoking as we turn back to John chapter 5. Now just a word about John the Baptist. Understand that John was highly, highly venerated in first century Judaism. He ranked with Elijah and Jeremiah and the greatest of Old Testament prophets. In a matter of months, John's preaching had been noticed by the rulers of the land, including even King Herod. Herod, in fact, was so terrified by John's preaching that he believed that John had later resurrected from the dead after he killed him. In fact, long after John had been martyred, when Jesus was in Jerusalem for his final Passover, just days before his death, Jesus put a question to the Jews concerning John's authority. And that question, if you read between the lines a little bit, indicates just how influential John had been. Here's what Jesus said. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, listen to this, We are afraid of the crowd. For they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And friends, that little interchange tells you just how influential John truly was. John, at this point, was dead. Nevertheless, the Jerusalem leaders are still just cowering in fear because of John's popularity with the crowds. It's no wonder then that Jesus points to John as his second witness to his true identity. However, Jesus is going to hasten to make an immediate clarification. It's found in verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus is saying, look, I actually don't need John's stamp of approval. Regardless of how influential John was, I really don't need him to authenticate who I am. Yes, wonderful if John calls me the Lamb of God, that is true. But do you really think that Jesus only figured out that he was God after hearing John the Baptist preaching? Well, certainly not. Jesus knew who he was, and that's what Jesus is saying here. I actually don't need John's approval, don't get me wrong. Jesus would still be God even if no human anywhere ever acknowledged him as such. Jesus needs no human affirmation. He is God. Nevertheless, Jesus points to John for the sake of his hearers. He wants his hearers to enjoy salvation. Look at the end of the the verse, that you may be saved. This really is just delightful, is it not? Jesus is willing for ordinary people like us to point people to Him. Jesus is willing to allow our testimonies, human witness, to point people to Christ. That really is an amazing thing. Again, Jesus does not need our affirmation, but Jesus delights 
when human testimony points other humans to Christ so that they may be saved. Now, verse 35 gives us a further estimation of who John was. He describes him here as a burning and shining lamp which pierced the dark night of Judea. To embrace John's teaching was indeed to embrace the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the fact is, for a brief time, just like a meteor that just sort of shines out there on the horizon, John was remarkably successful. We read of people just streaming out of the cities and out of the villages, down to the Jordan River to receive baptism at his hands. And Jesus acknowledges this temporary success at the end of the verse. You are willing to rejoice rejoice for a while, just for a while, in his light. Friends, whatever became of that witness, were people equally enthusiastic about the person to whom John pointed There is actually an implied charge against the Jews in Jesus' statement. You were willing to go along with John for a while as he pointed to me, but what's happening? It almost reads as if, what became of all that enthusiasm? We know that John's influence, after a rapid rise, began to wane just as quickly. And questions lurked around Jerusalem concerning both John and Jesus. And we know the outcome. Both were martyred. But nevertheless, Jesus points to John as his second witness. And that leads now to a third witness. A witness that is even greater than John. A third witness found in verse 36. Let's read it together. Jesus says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. All right, so what is the third witness? The third witness is our, okay, Kelly, which is, sorry, I'm looking at, is our Jesus' works. I've got to figure that out grammatically. Okay, that's hard, isn't it, witness? Okay, whatever. I should have asked Kelly before I got up here. Anyway, certainly these works include his miracles. But not just his miracles, of course, all of his works. Jesus ultimately will perform his great work of obedience and sacrifice and resurrection on the cross. And that's still in the future from the perspective of this conversation. But the works that Jesus' hearers had access to included the works that he has performed up to this point. So let's take just a moment and let's focus on Jesus' miracles. How did Jesus' miracles point to his true identity? If we were to compare the four Gospels, by my count, Jesus has performed miracles on nine recorded occasions up to this point in his ministry. So far, Jesus has turned water into wine, where we are told that he manifested his glory. John also tells us that Jesus did many signs in Jerusalem at Passover, although he does not identify what those signs were, but certainly that would take our number well above nine if we were to count all those signs. Jesus also healed a child at the point of death. He healed a demon-possessed man. He healed Peter's mother-in-law from fever. In both Matthew 4 and 8, we're told that Jesus healed the masses of various physical maladies. So again, that takes your number well above nine. We just have a reference to these mass miracles that he's doing. We've also read of him healing a leper. He has healed a paralytic. And earlier in our own chapter, he has healed a man at the Pool of Bethesda. You put all that together, and that's quite a range of miracles that Jesus has performed. After pointing to his work, Jesus, of course, will continue to do even more miracles. Jesus will heal a man with a withered hand. And Jesus will open blind eyes. He will open deaf ears. He will heal, he will feed thousands with a few loaves and fish. And Jesus will even raise 
the dead. So can I ask us this question? As we consider his miracles, his works, collectively, what are they telling us? Now, we've got, we've got to think through this issue very cautiously. And here's why. I have heard people claim, well, Jesus performed miracles, therefore he was God. Is that a problem? Well, people will say, Jesus performed miracles, therefore he was God, because only God can perform miracles. But you've got to be very, very careful with that kind of logic because Jesus was not the only one to perform miracles. Would you say that Peter was God? Would you say that Elijah was God? Prophets perform miracles. The disciples will perform miracles. And neither the prophets nor disciples were, in fact, God. All right? So it's true that God can perform miracles and Jesus does miracles, but it doesn't necessarily follow that just because he did a miracle, he's God. Because, again, we would have to say the same thing of Peter. But is there a sense in which the, the characteristics of his miracles just, just point beyond the fact that Jesus is no mere prophet? And I think, I, I think there are some characteristics. And I just want to I I I talk through this a little bit. Jesus, on many occasions, assumes the power to perform miracles is not derivative. In other words, he's not borrowing that power from God, as Peter would, or as Elijah would. That power is latent within himself. Now, would God really empower someone to perform miracles if he were not God, but took all the credit for working that miracle upon himself? I doubt it, right? In other words, would God empower an imposter who goes around saying, I have the power to do this, and God says, okay, I'll give him the power to do it. No, that, that power is late within Jesus because he is, in fact, God. Further, would God empower an imposter to perform such an astonishing variety of miracles? I want to think for a moment about the sheer range and the variety of Jesus' miracles and what they have in common as pointers to his true identity. Because the fact is, you do read of others doing miracles, but nothing like Jesus with the sheer variety and quantity of miracles that he is doing. Notice again the wording of the text in verse 36. Notice the second sentence. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus directly associates His works with the Father's will. So what I'm doing, this is really what the Father would be doing. Now, the Jews believe that the Father is the Creator. One and the same, of course. So, what sorts of miracles would you expect the Creator to perform? It's a valid question. If the Creator was to show up in His creation, what sorts of miracles would He perform? If someone goes about doing the exact miracles that you would expect the Creator would do, what does that tell you about His true identity? Especially when you look at the astonishing number of miracles that Christ does. Well, in my estimation, as the story of Jesus unfolds right through the four Gospels, Jesus performs precisely the kinds of miracles that you would expect of a Creator who intends to restore his creation, would perform. In other words, Jesus is no magician turning people into toads or stirring cauldrons of bubbling concoctions or vanishing a puff of smoke. Jesus is not a Harry Potter, friends. He's no Merlin. He's not casting spells with a wand. It's not the character of what we're seeing in the Gospels. In fact... I don't want to be misunderstood on this, but have you ever noticed just how Jesus' miracles appear almost ordinary? Like almost ordinary? 
What I mean is this. Jesus' miracles just come along and they just quietly restore nature to its regular function. He's not doing grand things. Like bewildering his opponents by changing the landscape. You know, that, that sort of thing. All right? He is just restoring nature the way it was intended to, to function from the beginning. Further, the miracle narratives just read in a very straightforward, historical way with, with no embellishment. When you read the Gospels, it's just like, okay, there's another miracle. It's just, it's just a historical fact. It just happened. In other words, there's, there's no sort of creepy supernaturalism. There's no witchcraft. There's no hocus-pocus going on. None of Jesus' miracles feel staged like those of a smooth-talking celebrity preacher who just jets around the country in his Learjet multi-million dollar Learjet, but refuses to show up at a hospital and really help somebody. It doesn't, they don't have that feel at all. In many instances, Jesus' miracles are just quiet accelerations, can I say it this way, of the Creator's providences. What do I mean by that? Well, think about Jesus' first miracle of turning water to wine. The truth is, the Creator has always been turning water to wine through a process that is so slow that we seldom notice it. He takes soil, sunlight, seed, an image-bearing farmer, and He produces a wonderful grape full of juice over the course of a full growing season. He's been doing that for centuries. But when the Creator comes, He just quietly transforms water instantly into wine without having to plow the field and strip away the thorns grown from the fall. And He does so with just very little fanfare. Now you might have a question. John's Gospel tells us that He did indeed manifest His glory, but I submit to you that this was not a staged, attention-grabbing display of His power. And we know that because the ruler of the feast had no idea where the wine came from. Like, where did this come from? Who did this? The miracle was indeed a quiet revelation of his glory. Think of this. The creator forms every child's limb in the womb. He did it for you. And he providentially grows it through nutrition and exercise, through childhood, through adolescence, and into maturity. He did it for you. When the Creator comes and he sees a man and he has this withered hand, he just tells him, stretch it out. And what normally would take some 20 years, Jesus just accelerates into seconds. But it's perfectly natural. It's miraculous, right? But he's just healing nature. Jesus performs these miracles with little or no fanfare. In fact, sometimes he tells people, don't, don't breathe a word about this to anybody. In my estimation, Jesus' miracles are very much like his incarnation. They involve this mysterious inter-involvement of the supernatural and the natural. And the, na- the result is nature restored. Creation restored. That's really why it's common. It's to restore nature. Restore creation. Creation is never abused. Creation is restored when the Creator touches it. So friends, if you can open your eyes today and see, it's because the Creator slowly crafted your eyes through 40 weeks in your mother's womb. When that creator comes and he sees a man that is born blind, he just accelerates into mere seconds what normally would take some 40 weeks. And he touches nature. Jesus just rapidly accelerates providence. He restores creation. He accelerates natural laws to overcome the curse. All that to say, I think Jesus' miracles just over and over and over again just keep on reiterating the same truth. The Creator has quietly incarnated Himself right in the nature. And you probably have a great big question. Yeah, what about John 6 and walking in the water? Right? We'll get to that, all right? Because that one to me is very unusual. We will come to that. that. That in some ways I think is the most unusual miracle He ever performed because it doesn't seem to quite fit with His healing miracles. All right, but that's coming in John 6. All right? But I knew you were thinking that. All right. 
Now, friends, there is just another facet of Jesus' miracles that I want to identify, and that is that his miracles are constantly just rolling back the curse of Genesis 3. And I've mentioned this on previous occasions, so I will not belabor this. But ever since the fall, we have viruses and deadly diseases that kill us. Children are born with genetic defects. If the Creator were to humbly incarnate himself into his creation, well, what, what sorts of miracles do you think he would perform? Jesus sees a cripple and he creates blood veins and muscle tissue and bone mass. He tells the man to stand up and walk. He just turns back the curse. Jesus instantly calms the terrible storms of nature that have destroyed hundreds of ships and drowned thousands of soldiers. Just just peace. Nature, be at peace. Shalom is the Hebrew word. Be still. Jesus creates hearing in the ears of a man who have never heard, who has never heard the joyful birds at song or the waves crashing against the shore. Think of that. His ears are open to hear the voice of nature. It just seems that Jesus does precisely the kinds of things you would expect the Creator who loves His creation to do. That, that, that seems to be, to be the character of His miracles, of Jesus' miracles. Wouldn't you expect the Creator to just go roll back the curse that descended on His creation? Look at verse 36 again. Jesus said, For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Look at the works that He is doing. Are these the works of the Creator? It never occurred to me to confuse Merlin or Harry Potter with the Creator. Right? It doesn't ever occur to me. But when I look at Jesus, I, I just can't imagine the Creator acting any differently than how Jesus acted. The Creator's verdict, think of this, was that His whole creation was very good. That's how I want it to be. It's very good. Now we ruined it. So what do you think the Creator's going to do? Well, turn it back. So it's very good once again. That's what Jesus is doing. But of course, there was one enormous problem. Jesus healed the blind with their eyes closed again in the grave. He stretched out the withered hand and it shriveled again in the grave. He freed the tongue of the deaf and the dumb, but they lie mute and deaf in the grave. He creates the fruit of the vine, but the vine withers and dies. He creates bread to feed thousands. The droughts and blight and locusts still destroy right up to the present hour. Jesus even raised the dead, and they die again. Christ's miracles attack symptoms of the curse, and the curse just keeps coming right back. What the creation needs most is one great, decisive miracle. One great, decisive, supernatural invasion in the fallen nature that not only attacks the symptoms, but destroys the curse. That's what we need. If Jesus is the Creator, don't you suppose that He is going to find a way to move beyond symptoms to destroying the curse itself? Of course He will. And friends, He has already told us what He's up to. Glance back at verses 25 through 29. And read these verses again as the climactic work, the great work of the incarnate Son. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life, notice this, in Himself, so as He granted the Son also to have life where? In Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Friends, Jesus performed many, many miracles. 
But there's a sense in which when you're reading the Gospels, all those miracles are just going to fade into the background. And the Gospel writers are going to draw our attention ultimately to one climactic, grand miracle found at the end of all four Gospels. A miracle that is preached in every sermon in the book of Acts. A miracle that in the epistles is going to reorient our whole understanding of the world. And a miracle that in Revelation eventuates in a new heaven and a new earth. One miracle in particular demonstrates that Jesus is indeed, in his own words, the source of all life. Life is in him. And consequently, he is the fitting champion to destroy the curse. Friends, Jesus resurrected from the grave because it was quite impossible for the Creator to stay dead. And if you look at Peter's sermon in Pentecost, that is exactly what he is preaching. When you are the source of life, you cannot stay dead. Peter literally said it was impossible. It was impossible for that body even begin to decay. That was the great miracle, that decisive supernatural invasion of the curse that restores nature to its wholeness. C.S. Lewis wrote, I believe that God really has dived down into the bottom of creation and has come up again bringing the whole redeemed nature on His shoulder The miracles that have already happened are, of course, the Scripture so often says, the first fruits of that cosmic summer which is presently coming on. Christ has risen, and so shall we rise. St. Peter, for a few seconds, walked in the water, and the day will come when there will be a remade universe, infinitely obedient to the will of glorified and obedient men. So friends, who is Jesus? Well, look at His works. Look at His miracles. And you have the advantage, unlike His heroes in John 5, to look at His resurrection from the grave. Look at those works. What else can you conclude but that the Creator who pronounced everything that He made very good has indeed come to make all things new? That's the third witness. And we have one more witness to go, and I will not treat it exhaustively this morning. We'll come back next week and work through it down to the end of the chapter, but let's identify it in verse 39. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Again, we'll return here next week, but let's consider just what Jesus is saying. The Scriptures at this point include what we would now call the Old Testament. The Old Testament books are a witness to Jesus. We'll have to figure out exactly how that works next week. But after Jesus resurrected from the dead, Luke's Gospel in chapter 24 tells us that He met two perplexed disciples as they traversed the road to Emmaus. These disciples understood neither Jesus' death or resurrection. They were perplexed by it. They were baffled by reports that Jesus had possibly risen from the grave. And Luke tells us, quote, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Moses, of course, is a reference to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. From the very beginning, from where Moses began with the creation account, Genesis 1, all right, working through all the Bible, Jesus viewed himself as the destiny of all those passages. It all points to me. It's all about Jesus. In fact, this last summer, five colleagues and I have been working on a new freshman Bible class at Bob Jones University, and we were discussing how to Tell the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the more we talked about it, we decided we weren't going to start in Genesis 1. Guess where we're starting? Luke 24. We want students to know from the very beginning, this is a story about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. 
And you've got that in place, and go back to Genesis 1 and read the whole Testament all over again. And look how it points to Jesus. And we'll spend some time with that next week. But just imagine with me the audacity of a person who claimed, all your scriptures, all your scriptures, they all point to me. That's an astonishing claim. Imagine I said that to you. You, you, you all have been reading the Bible for how long now? It all points to me. It's all a witness to me. This guy is crazy or he is God. There's no middle ground. The Bible is a book about Jesus. So friends, we have four witnesses to Jesus' true identity. Here they are, the Father, John the Baptist, Jesus' works, and the Scriptures. We'll spend more time with the Scriptures next week. But Jesus believed that those four witnesses were sufficient. They were sufficient to call men to truly embrace him. Now we, of course, have the added benefit of knowing more about his miracles, and in particular, the miracle of the resurrection. So we actually have more evidence than they even had in the first century when Jesus spoke. And of course, we have the witness of the apostles, and 27 more books of Scripture. So I wonder if there is someone here today and you are waiting. You're waiting to embrace Jesus. I think you probably know me well enough that I am not about high pressure. I am not about manipulation. But can I just ask, what are you waiting for? Will Durant, who was born in 1885 and died in 1981, was one of the leading historians of the 20th century. Very, very well-known man. Durant wrote a a famous, massive, 11-volume history of the world. I have those books at home, and they're they're small print, and some of them are over a 1,000 pages. Durant was also an atheist. And his works demonstrate a disdain, a bias against Christianity. Nevertheless, when it came to the person of Jesus Christ, he was forced to admit that he was no cleverly devised myth. That there was something about this man that he could not move past. He rejected Christ, but let's be clear... It wasn't because of the evidence. Here's what Durant writes. The evangelists, the gospel writers, record many incidents that mere inventors would have concealed. The competition of the apostles for high places in the kingdom. Their flight after Jesus' arrest, Peter's denial, the failure of Christ to work miracles in Galilee, his confessions of ignorance as the future, his moments of sorrow, his despairing cry on the cross. It's all in the gospels. Here's what he says. No one reading these scenes can doubt the reality of the figure behind them. That a few simple men, that is the apostles, should in one generation have invented so powerful and appealing a personality, so lofty an ethic, and so inspiring a vision of human brotherhood would be a miracle far more incredible than any recorded in the Gospels. After two centuries of higher criticism, that is, attacks on the Bible, the outlines of the life, character, and teaching. What has Jesus taught us this morning? And teaching of Christ remain clear and constitute the most fascinating feature in the history of Western man. Friends, the evidence is clear. Jesus was unlike any other human who ever lived, you can read through 11 massive volumes of world history and you will find no one like Jesus. And that's because Jesus is your creator. He is one with the Father. And what a tragedy it would truly be for someone just to sit here through our services and to just work right through a gospel like John. And to see, to, to see and to read the evidence that forced an atheist historian like Durant to admit that Jesus is the most important person in the world. 
and yet for all that, just to simply reject him in the end. So can I ask again, what, what might you be waiting for? What might you be waiting for? If you have a sense that you are being drawn to Jesus, that, that is actually the witness of the Father through his Spirit in your heart. That's what's happening. Friends, you are not going to get any better witness than the Father and John the Baptist and Jesus' words and the Scriptures. If you're waiting for more, you will wait for eternity. It is time for you, my friend, to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Shall we pray? As we bow our heads and close our eyes, I want to encourage anyone here today who has not yet embraced Jesus Christ to really give the matter some real consideration. You can fill out the Connect card and you can ask to speak with someone this week. You're welcome to call the church office. But I just wonder if there might be anyone here today who just says, you know, I don't want to leave this morning without finding out more, without at least talking with someone. All right, so everyone around you has their eyes closed. Is there anyone that just wants to look my way and hold up their hand and just say, hey, could you, could you point me to someone this morning before I leave today? Or do you want to make sure that I talk with somebody today? Okay. Okay, anybody like that that just really feels like you need to get this matter settled before you even leave today? You don't have to do that. You're welcome to go home and contemplate and come back and talk to us this week. Okay. All right, well, let me encourage you to make a note on the Connect card, and uh, if we can be of any help to you, we will be in touch with you this week. Friend, you're you're not going to get any better evidence than you've already been given. Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you have borne witness his identity as your son, as our creator. We thank you for the message of John the Baptist and other apostles, disciples, teachers, preachers who have come along and borne witness to Jesus. We thank you for the record of Jesus' miracles that we have. We're thankful for the scriptures. We pray that our, your spirit would just open our eyes through the scriptures, to who Jesus truly is. And for anyone here today, Lord, who is just struggling to know whether they might put their faith in Christ, I pray that your spirit would just guide them in this decision and encourage them to reach out in faith and to trust Christ. We pray for Christ's sake that he might have all the glory. Amen.